Hey, this is Moses Moe. And this is Carrie Denton. And I'm Poison Evie. We're all with the Real Cool Band. You're listening to The Manifesto with Billy Brew. Yeah. Woo! This is The Manifesto with Billy Brew. I am your host, Billy Brew, and thank you very much for making uh, my show part of your listening Thursday. We are heard on the Real 1100 AM radio in Atlanta, Georgia. You can also listen live, streaming while you work or streaming live or wherever you do things, real1100.com. You can also download the Real 1100 app for your iPhone or Android. The TuneIn Radio app is another way to find us. Uh, just download that app. I use it all the time, and it's a, it's another great resource to find us. iHeartRadio as well. And if, if that wasn't enough, we also have a Manifesto with Billy Brew Facebook page. I have all my past shows on there, good, good content. Everything you need to know about the show is on that page. And finally, finally, podcasts available all over the place. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Radio Public, Breaker, and Pocket Casts. And before we go any further, I'd like to say good morning to Greg, the producer with No Equal. And this hour of the Manifesto with Billy Brew is brought to you by Habersham Home Solutions and Landscape. Spring is finally here. Spring into action with your friends at Habersham Home Solutions and Landscape. These guys can help you with a new landscape design and installation for your home. Landscape enhancements to complement your existing landscape. Design and installation of new spring flower beds. Installation of pine straw and nuggets. General yard cleanup available as well. Junk removal for that spring cleanup around your house. Handyman services available. Painting and so much more. So give these guys a call for your free estimate today 770-616-5979 770-616-5979 they cover all over metro atlanta so give these guys a call 770-616-5979 solutions for your home habersham home solutions and landscape all right if you were a long time listener of this show i really appreciate your support and if you're a brand new listener to the show thank you and welcome aboard this is the manifesto with billy brew and what we do here is feature ordinary people doing extraordinary things. What's your story? Um, the original premise of the show, way back uh, almost a year ago now, was to um, feature challenges and concerns, triumphs of men in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond. But as the show evolved, just really meeting some cool people. And uh, I had the, had the pleasure of meeting a bunch of good musicians, authors, filmmakers, uh, media personalities, wonderfully strong and successful women. They've been fantastic. And one of my favorite car- uh, categories is entrepreneurs. And my special guest this hour is a, uh, a very successful entrepreneur. He is a fascinating man. I had the pleasure of uh, working with him about 20 years ago at a bedding plant nursery of all places. I uh, would like to welcome to the show Mr. Alvaro Samosa. Good morning, Al. Good morning, Bill. How are you? I am doing well, sir. How are you doing this morning? Well, I'm in Miami, Florida, on a rest stop, heading back to Manawa in uh, in about five days. So I'm happy to be at your show. How are you? How have you been? I have, I have been well, and uh, I'm very happy to talk to you and reconnect. Uh, just to give the listeners uh, a little background, Al and I worked together uh, at a bedding plant nursery called American Farms about 20 years ago. And can you imagine it's been that long, Al? It's incredible. It's incredible. We, well, we started that. Uh, I founded that uh, 
farm in 1991. And uh, you came along, and uh, 10 years later, I uh, decided that uh, I'd done my job there, so uh, I left uh, the, the farm in the management of uh, my children and my ex-wife, and I went to Nicaragua, where I'm originally from, and I started to recover some of the assets that the Sandinistas had confiscated from my family uh, totally uh, illegally. And so uh, that's uh, pretty much what I'm dedicating myself to. I uh, ran a couple of political campaigns for a couple of candidates down there. And uh, as you remember, I was president of the FNGA, the Florida Nursery and Growers Association. And uh, so I know a little bit about public life, and that <laughs> kind of got me involved. Absolutely. Well, you brought up your family, and if anybody who is my age and, and our age and older would recognize your last name, uh, Samosa. And it, would you mind spending a few a few minutes talking about your family history in, in, in Nicaragua? Well, uh, my my grandfather uh, was the uh, actually it goes back to way 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 beyond him. Uh, great grandfathers, uh, great great grandfathers were involved in some sort of way in the, the political situation in the country. But the one who came, who rose to the top was uh, my grandfather, General Anastasio Somoza Garcia, a son of a coffee planter farmer, actually from a conservative background, who joined the U.S. Marines in the, in the fight of keeping peace, because one of the problems of these countries is that Kind of like we see today in a much more civilized method, if you care, uh, the Democrats and the Republicans, they go at it, except, you know, 150 years ago, they used to go at it with weapons. Uh, so my grandfather, uh, you know, brought peace to the country, settled things, and of course, they call him, and yes, he was, he took over the country uh, in order to appease it, but he brought uh, quite a bit of progress to the, to the country. The U.S. Marines left. And uh, he was uh, in charge for a while. Uh, he passed laws that were, you know, very uh, modern for the age. You've got to remember, this is back in the 30s. He, he gave the vote to uh, allow women to vote in public uh, uh, elections. He created the, the, uh, the labor code, which was unheard of. You know, people used to uh, just about slave labor in another way. Uh, so the grandfather established certain norms that my father later uh, uh, proceeded to create the minimum wage and the right to uh, vacation pay. And, uh, you know, we passed, my family was in power on and off with six other presidents for over 40 years. And uh, the Social Security system was established by my father. The central bank was established by my dad. Um, we we modernized Nicaragua. The, the, the country was considered uh, the most progressive, uh, economically uh, uh, speaking, country in Central America. Just to give you an idea, uh, we were the third largest beef consumer per capita in Latin America, except in made with Mex uh, with uh, Argentina. The U.S. was number one, Argentina was number two, and Nicaragua was number three on a beef consumption per capita. That's a, today, in in the in the way the Sandinistas took over, 
They destroyed us. They, they put us down to the level of Haiti. That's oh, how wow. poor today. They destroyed everything. And uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, these countries are suffering uh, the the remains of a very corrupt uh, system. It's pretty much what you see with Cuba and Chavez in, uh, or now Maduro in Venezuela. All these clowns get up there because they, they give a very populist speech, and uh, and then they, they don't perform. You know, show me a socialist nation that has excelled in anything in the world. Yeah. There's not one. Not a one. What was, uh, what was Nicaragua like before, the 19, before your family uh, assumed power? Well, we had a country completely divided. Uh, between two factions, the liberals and the conservatives, going at it, one bastion was in Granada and the other bastion was in Leon, and they went at it with, you know, with weapons, you know, killing each other until somebody took over the presidency, uh, and, they, and like, there was no progress. They, 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 they kept the conservatives would call in the U.S. to come in with the Marines. They would appease the thing that the Marines would leave, and then they go at it again until General Somoza decided that was it. You know, we, we have to stop this, and we have to get this country rolling. To give you a concept, when my father was president, my father was Luis Somoza, he was elected in 1957, uh, the national currency was at seven Cordovas, that's the name of the currency, to $1. And it was sold at that exchange rate for over 20 years. And... The, the uh, growth, the national growth of the country during his presidency was averaging about 10% per year. That, that just goes to show you. I remember before I met you, Billy, I was running our, our rice plantation uh, in Nicaragua, and I had to buy new tractors, these 8630 John Deere, 300 horsepower, huge engines articulated tractor so I could work more efficiently. And uh, I had a visitor from, I don't know what what company, uh, Monsanto or one of those companies, and he brought along this banker from Louisville, uh, from Louisville, Kentucky. And I happened to mention that I was looking for financing because I, I would put about 50% of the money and I would finance about 50% of the money to buy these tractors. Well, the Bank of Louisville, never ever knowing me or, or even hearing about our plantation, said, you know, I'd be interested in that. And I said, sure. So we, I was a pilot at the time. I took him in my plane over to Rice Plantation, overflew, showed him what we had done. We had about an 8,000-acre irrigated rice plantation that produced about 600,000 sacks of rice, uh, about... A quarter of it was exported to the Caribbean countries, and the rest was consumed in, in the country. Now, I don't know if a lot of listeners knew that Nicaragua was such a uh, prolific rice producer. You know, we always think of them in the Asian countries, but not in Nicaragua, at least not for me. Well, we, 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 were, we were, you know, when, when people ask me, you know, a guy like you, a friend of mine, asked me, why, why, why do you do this? And I said, well, my father had a funny way about teaching us. He used to play. He was a young father. He used to he used to make us drive 
these jeeps, you know, these old beat-up jeeps in the farm, uh, so that we could get stuck and uh, make the whole adventure of, un- you know, unstuck in the jeep from the mud. And But it was an adventure while he worked. So we learned to enjoy work. And so we were, you know, 14-hour-a-day guys when we were 22, when I graduated from college and went to Nicaragua. We enjoyed that. So we were very productive. We didn't know anything, you know, in terms of technical. I was a business administration manager, but I had a, a Ph.D. agronomist uh, in the rice plantation running the uh, the plantation, and he was a great teacher to me. My father passed away before I went to Kent School in uh, prep school in Connecticut. And so people that he had working for him were my teachers when I came back from college. And we were producing parboiled rice in Nicaragua in 1969. I don't know that any country still produces parboiled rice in Central America other than the United States. Yeah. Uncle Ben, you know, we, right, were yeah. doing, we were doing it. Our, our, our sugar mill in, in the other side of Lake Nicaragua, we were producing uh, about a million sacks of sugar, uh, probably, uh, I don't know, I don't know the acreage, in, uh, but we averaged about 200 uh, pounds or 202 pounds of sugar that were milled. Uh, which at the time, back in the 70s, was a pretty good yield. Uh, we irrigated all that with uh, flood irrigation from Lake Nicaragua. It was, it was, we we uh, cattle uh, husks that, that, you know, the leaves that sugar can leave. And we, we were very progressive a year ago in Nicaragua. The Sandinistas came in with a lot of help from President Carter, and, and it's part of the country based on this liberal concept of freedom, which is horse. So forget, forgive my friends in your in your program, but that's that's just not the case. Nicaragua uh, was was a beautiful country that needed a lot of change, but not the way Carter ran it and and destroyed it. We we were set back forty years in terms of progress in every way. What was it like for you growing up, knowing, did you know, like, say you're, you're five years old, did you know what your family was doing as, for lack of a better word, an occupation? I mean, what was it? you probably grew up differently than most other kids in Nicaragua. Well, yes. I'm, uh, I, I, I kid some of my buddies in Nicaragua when, they, when they're talking about it. Some, some, some people uh, are still uh, cognizant of uh, Bloodline, you know, I'm. You know, those who come to Mayflower, well, in in Nicaragua, they have the same thing. You know, some people relegate to their past, and so I tell them all, well, you all may be from wherever you are, but I was born in the presidential house in Nicaragua, which was true. I had to be president in 1952, and my dad and my mom lived with him. So I was born, I was the only child ever born in this central house. I went to school as a kid from kindergarten to to high school uh, with friends well aware that I was... 
All right. Hey, Al, if you can hear me, we're going to try to get a better signal uh, on your phone, so uh, bear with me. Uh, Greg will call you right back. But uh, if you're just tuning in, we're, li- we're talking with uh, Alvaro Samosa. Uh, he's in Miami currently, and he is a member of the uh, – well, he, you know, he grew up, as you, as you heard, as a, the Samosa dynasty, which ran from 1936 to 1979. Now, longtime listeners of the show uh, would understand that I don't take a political stance at all. We don't talk politics, but I think this gentleman is fascinating enough. He has – uh, Nicaraguan history and, and American history intertwined. So, uh, any kind of stories that he can tell us about that. But um, we will uh, certainly. I want to dive into his uh, many business ventures as well. Uh, obviously, with an agricultural background. So, uh, do we have uh, Mr. Samosa on the line? All right, Al, are you back? I'm here. Yeah. Sorry, we had a really bad connection, and so we wanted to get a better connection there. So, um, yeah. Please continue, please. <laughs> Well, I was just mentioning to you that I, I grew up around, you know, the, the presidency for a while, and then Dad finished his presidency when I was 11, and, you know, the rest of my life was unrelated to political environment, but because of who I was, uh, I I could hear stories, I could talk to many people, and you, you kind of developed an understanding, a, a kind of a second nature to political environment, manipulations, machinations. Uh, it, it's just that it, it, it's different. I'm, I'm sort of different. I, I, I wasn't allowed to go to certain things because of who I was. Uh, some of the political opposition uh, were not nice to us, socially speaking. So we had to learn to deal with that, those environments and, uh, and, and, and kind of like, uh, Christian turned the other cheek, so to speak, and learned to be discreet. Uh, but uh, uh, in in reality, uh, I was uh, I was brought up by a, a very Catholic mom and dad, and a very strict father in terms of grades in school and and uh, work ethic, uh, even silly things. You know, if we if you ask me to, to get on a horse and, you know, herd some cattle into a corral type of thing, he, he made sure that we did that right uh, with other workers, and, and there was no special treatment. So whatever we didn't do in the city with friends, we were very adept to do uh, with uh, the country folk in, in the farms. So it was it was an interesting education. Oh, no doubt. And speaking of education, was it understood that you were going to go to college here in the United States, or were there options for you in Nicaragua? Yeah, I, I could have gone to uh, the uh, university, the Catholic University in Managua, but my parents wanted me to learn to speak English, and, and uh, you know, my grandfather was educated in the United States, so was my dad. And so was I. I. I mean, I went up to high school in, in Nicaragua, then came to, to the uh, prep school in Connecticut and finished up there. Uh, then I went to college in California, uh, got my degree in business administration, and went back to Nicaragua to work. When we uh, went into exile in 1979, I wanted to get my MBA at uh, University of Virginia, where I was actually accepted. And... Uh, Conditions had it that my family needed me to run, you know, get our family going, so to speak, in exile. So I, I had to sacrifice, uh, and and uh, 
my oldest brother, who was kind of like my boss, my my leader, uh, my oldest brother Bernabe and myself ran our family's businesses. We we kind of had to sacrifice education in order to provide for all seven children and mom and nephews and nieces and whatnot that we had uh, around. And you mentioned the term exile, and that's always uh, linked with some sort of you know, political affiliation. What's it like for the Samosa family in exile after 1979? What is life like? I mean, what do y'all do, just kind of a, in a general sense? Well, it, the, my, my mother's maiden name is Urcuyo, and so we refer to as the family Samosa Urcuyo, my parents' children, so to speak. Okay. We, we were, after my father... Uh, finished his presidential term in 1963, we were out of politics. He was an agronomist, and all he dedicated himself was to farming and whatnot. Unfortunately, he had a heart attack in 1967, and so we were left on our own with Mom, and so my oldest brother uh, quit college and came to work, and still I came in 1974 and started helping him. Uh, And then, you know, we never got involved in any politics. So so when we were into exile, it was to save our lives. Because Sandinistas were pretty savage. They were, they were terrible. They were murdering people simply because of who they were or who they were affiliated with. you got to go back to that era. It was very, very bloody, very terrible. Yes, it was. But uh, I, we came to exile. We had no businesses. But we had a great work ethic and a lot of friends in the U.S., so we started uh, getting involved in just looking at businesses that were for sale. And we did an analysis of each one, and, and uh, we were lucky. Uh, in the majority of the businesses we get involved with, we were very successful. Again, surrounding ourselves with very, very talented American uh, folks uh, and our work ethic uh, made these businesses very, uh, very successful. American farms where you and I met, I, I literally founded that company because of my agricultural background in Nicaragua. I researched what segment of agriculture in the state of Florida was successful. And I ended up in the horticulture, floriculture, the color in the horticulture business, and I researched it up in Gainesville, where I used to live at the University of Florida. And uh, I founded American Farms. You know, I invested in a tiny little uh, real estate, uh, $97,000. And I, I, I bought my first truck in Palm Beach, drove it to Naples, painted the box, and I, myself drove the first plants from Garden center to garden center, offering the darn plants. <laughs> That's great. Until, until the name got famous. And, well, you came along. We were already in the millions in sales. Yeah, we were cooking. By the time, by the time I left American Farms, I had already been president of the Florida Nursery Growers and Landscape Association. We were selling at American Farms about $18 million a year. That was nine years after I had founded the company. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I, uh, unfortunately, I cost, and I don't have any qualms admitting, uh, our divorce uh, or my divorce to the mother of my children. But at the same time, I chose to 
make a right. And so I negotiated that we don't sell the business. I would uh, detach myself from it because I knew Christine, my uh, former wife, was a phenomenally well-trained lady who understood she had an MBA, she understood the business. And so I gave her my job. And and I kind of make sure that, that the organization was such that she could run the business. And we created a trust fund and put the, the our shares in the trust for the boys, our two sons. And I went to Nicaragua. And I, you know, I go back and forth. I've been going back and forth for 20 years. But uh, that was in 2001. Yeah. And so uh, it, it's been a very, today is the third largest bedding plant and, and, and perennial plant nursery in the state of Florida. They sell over $30 million plus dollars a year. They don't have a, a, a dime in debt. They, their, their self-insurance fund is $5 million. It's a, it's a phenomenal success story. It really and is. I found it, and, and, you know, I left. By the grace of God, everything has worked very well. So. It, it, it has. And, and I just have a curious question. When you're doing your business analysis to start that uh, the company called American Farms, were you ever considering citrus or any other kind of agriculture or horticulture uh, as opposed to bedding plants, which, you know, for the listeners out there, is, you know, begonias and marigolds and all that kind of stuff? Well, one of the big things I learned when I was a young boy with my dad was that even though he was an extremely uh, well-trained uh, agronomist. He went to UC Davis and then to LSU uh, to get animal husbandry and then a uh, doctor's degree in irrigation at University of Maryland. Uh, he surrounded himself with very talented people. And that became evident to me when he passed away. Uh, the people that were running his businesses were to me, as good or better than he was. And and that's what I did at American Farms. Our, our, uh, I, I had people who were, uh, uh, you know, very talented uh, horticulturalists, uh, very talented workers, uh, and I we motivated them to, to do an excellent job. You yourself were one of them. Our good friend Rob Solzer was another one. Uh, we had... We had a great group of people, but it, it, it all starts with understanding that there is no Superman. There's no silver bullet. There's, you know, there's just a lot of human beings that pull together a great company. And, and just, you know, the fact that I signed the check didn't mean that I was it. The fact <laughs> is, I left the farm, and it's twice as big as I left it. Yeah. So, and in the in the days I worked with you uh, hand in hand, I mean, you were in there. You weren't just a hi, I'm the owner of the company, and I'll see you guys later. No, you were in there with us, with us salespeople and the workers and the, and the management. I mean, you were there. Well, I enjoyed getting my hands dirty. That the, when I was uh, uh, selling to the Pike Family Nurseries up in Atlanta, uh, they had a great shirt that said, uh, uh, "I'd love to play in the dirt." <laughs> <laughs> yep. And it was true. We used to do it. I'll tell you what, Bill. When when I started American Farms, to the time that I got in the truck to sell the first plants, we did. It took about from about September of 1991 to about February of 1992. I lost 27 pounds <laughs> during the construction during during the construction of the first an acre. It was awesome. I mean. 
I was digging trenches. I was gluing eight-inch pipes together. I mean, people have no clue what it what it took to build a darn thing. And uh, but it was it, it was a tremendous uh, experience, and it got me close to a lot of people. Then in the sales part of it, that you know, opening the sales to companies like Home Depot, Target, Walmart, Lowe's, uh, uh, the you know Disney World. Uh, uh, Bush Gardens and, and all a slew of landscapers across the state of Florida. It was the, the, the effort put in in hours. You know that my vehicle used to be average about 62,000 miles a year. <laughs> wow. I mean, think about it. Yeah. I had to go from, from, you know, I would drive up to Fort Myers and go see the Home Depot, the Target, the Walmart, and then see the landscapers. And move up to Punta Gorda, and move up to Sarasota, and move up to it was it was unbelievable. It was all through the state of Florida, from you know Tallahassee all the way down. Yeah, it was it's a phenomenal experience, and I'm very proud of it because uh, I you know uh, people get all wired up over things, but I was in the cover of industry journals for six of them for years, and it was. It's good to my ego, so to speak, but it was more uh, as it was more a statement of the great team that we had put together. Absolutely, yeah. I thought I thought you were very uh, adept at uh, surrounding yourself with a good team. Well, Al, we're, we need to take a quick break, a quick commercial break. But I would love on the other side of the break to talk more about some of your more current entrepreneurial ventures. You bet. All right, we'll be right back. You're listening to the Manifesto with Billy Brew. When you think of good barbecue, you think of the South. And when you think of the best barbecue in Atlanta, you think Das Barbecue. Their meats are slowly smoked with seasoned hickory and pecan wood. Choose from mouthwatering beef brisket, pulled pork, ribs, chicken wings, and other delicious slow-smoked meats. They offer an outstanding selection of side dishes like mac and cheese, cream corn, collard greens, and much, much more. Located in the heart of Atlanta at 1203 Collier Road, Das Barbecue is conveniently located for your barbecue fix. Having a party or big event? Das Barbecue can handle all of your catering needs as well. Visit their website at dasbarbecue.com. That's D-A-S-B-B-Q.com. Or give them a call at 404-850-7373. For the best barbecue you'll ever eat, it's got to be Das Barbecue. 1203 Collier Road in Atlanta, 404-850-7373, or on the web at dasbarbecue.com. Straight out of the
Welcome back to the Manifesto with Billy Brew. And that was uh, Payphone Poets and their new song, Rips and Tears. And they will be uh, performing at the Lemonade Days at Dunwoody on April 27th. And they go on at 2 o'clock. So catch those guys. All right. My very special guest this hour is the great Alvaro Somoza. And Al, we were talking about how you started uh, a bedding plant company called American Farms and built it up uh, to what basically kind of what it is today. What other entrepreneurial ventures have you done, not only here in the States, but maybe in uh, Nicaragua as well? Well, uh, as I mentioned to you in the earlier statement, um, we came in and, and purchased ongoing concerns from people that were selling for whatever reason after a close analysis. And, and in some cases, we were very successful. One of them was, uh, this is back when I was running my mom's state, so to speak, her capital that she inherited from that, uh, we got into the dealership business, and we uh, purchased uh, two dealerships, one in Houston, uh, which was South Point, Porsche Audi, and the other one in Dallas, Forest Lane, Porsche Audi. And uh, we just, coming from the outside of an industry, you kind of don't have any uh, hang-ups, and, and uh, you start, asking questions outside the box. And, and we started surrounding ourselves with young, talented people who had who shared the same sort of uh, no-nonsense work ethic that we had. And uh, between 1980, when we per- bought the first dealership, and 1987, when I finally left uh, the, the my job with mom, uh, uh, we turned Forest Lane and South Point into the number one and the number two Porsche sales center in the world. In the world, Bill. Wow. Not, not just Texas or Dallas or nothing. In the world. Only the factory sold more vehicles than we did. How do you attribute that uh, success, Al? How do you tr- attribute well, the car sales? People. It's strictly people. We, like I said... We didn't have any hang-ups. It wasn't good old boy networks. It was, what can we do to sell more? Who are our customers? What? Who is the new Porsche customers coming in? There were a lot of things that contributed. For example, during the Reagan administration, the deregulation of the savings and loan produced a lot of inexpensive money. The the weak dollar, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the, the weak Dutch mark made the cars very inexpensive. The enormous military buildup, a lot of those contractors were in Texas. There, there was money to be had, and we just sucked it into the car business uh, very effectively. We had young people who, who knew how to sell. We, we, we were the first dealership. you got, you got to talk about 1980 now, all right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that, was, uh, that was a time when we decided that, the a person who was going to come in uh, looking for a 911 Porsche for $48,000 was not uh, a, a crook. This guy was an exciting, uh, uh, young, 45, 50-year-old lawyer who was wanted to get out of this suburban. His kids were already in college, and he wanted something sporty. So he would come in, and we'd say to him, all right, I'll tell you what. You like that car? 
you take it for the weekend. Leave me, let me have your Suburban. I'll park it in the garage. <laughs> you go on. And they took that car. When they came back on Monday, they're ready to sign on the dotted line. No doubt. That, that, is, that, is, the ult- yeah, that is the ultimate test drive. You give it to them for the weekend. Oh, let me tell you. I don't know that maybe a 2% of them returned the car. The rest of them bought it. We were, we were, but, but that was not the norm in the industry, Bill. Yeah. It was something out of the box. And that's the success of our lives. In Nicaragua, for example, I, I started looking at the enormous waste of plastic going into the uh, sewer. And, and I, you know, I, I said, we got to start a recycling plant. And I convinced the Spanish government to set up a recycling center. And, you know, a whole slew of people started collecting plastic. And I set up a plant in Managua to wash the plastic, separate it by thickness and type of plastic, and bail it and ship it to countries like El Salvador, who had a good industrial base, uh, to recycle the plastic. Uh, I started uh, uh, exporting frozen plantains out of Nicaragua. Again, another job that I had to keep myself busy with doing something while I was collecting the, from the government or the people who took our assets from 1979 forward. It, it takes a lot of effort, a lot of research, a lot of hours with lawyers and whatnot to prepare a case against somebody who is a professional crook. Yeah, you know, on the basis of political bias, they simply said the Samosas were bad. Well, that was all disinformation. Prove to me how the hell I'm bad. Sorry about the word. I apologize. <laughs> I, how how was I bad? I was a 28 year old professional who left here companies that were operating legally, paying their taxes, paying everything. And the fact is that when I returned to the country in 19 19- 90, when Mrs. Chamorro won the elections against the Sandinistas, nobody touched me. Nobody did any harm to me. Yeah. Because I hadn't done a darn thing to anybody. My companies were being run by the government somewhat inefficiently, but they were still being run mostly by the people I left running them. What happened is that the famous piñata, the Sandinistas, gave them away Instead of keeping it in the government's hands, they give them away to their cronies. That's what I'm dedicating myself to, is recovering those assets or getting paid for them. But in the meantime, I, you know, a type A personality, I couldn't just sit and wait for the lawyers. No. I went out and worked. Absolutely. And when you're doing these feasibility studies on these different industries, car industry, you know, horticultural industry, other than return on investment, what do you, what attracts you to a company or well, a different the, type of company? When I went to college, the very first thing that my teacher, uh, accounting teacher, said to me was, Mr. Higby, uh, business is an ongoing concern. It never stops. It is, for the moment you start a company, it is ongoing. And you are going to have challenges and obstacles and opportunities all along the way. It's 
how you handle that. And part of the way you handle that, he was an accounting teacher, is how you record the history and the statistics to, to those challenges, obstacles, or opportunities. So to me, the challenge is creating from an idea something that produces well-being for a lot of people, not just the owners. American Farms at the time had over 250 employees. Wow. I mean, we're much more automated now, and they're, you know, they're phenomenally uh, working. But, but it, back in the day when we started, we had a ton of people working. That, that all came from an idea. It didn't come from, you know, somebody who gave me a gift. Do you know, Bill, uh, this is honest to God truth. When I started American Farms in 1991, I didn't know what a petunia was. <laughs> I, I, that, doesn't, I, that doesn't surprise me. I, I went to school. I went to the University of Florida, and I studied everything there was to know about horticulture. And I, I became a, you know, an expert in my field, but not through a, a, a diploma. Just hard work. The, the school of hard knocks. Yeah, and that and that, that pays off in the long run. It always does. I did that in the recycling business. I started a recycling plant in Gainesville, Florida. It's called Gator Recycling. I don't know if that's still there or not, but I, what what happened was uh, BFI, Browning Ferris Industries, that, that collects wastes in the United States, needed to improve their contract to Alachua County, where the University of Florida is. And so I happened to be friends with a guy who run it. And I told this guy, why don't you put some recycling and I'll process it for you. So he bought some trucks in Canada, brought them to Gainesville, and he used to play. We were about the first or second county in the state of Florida to do recycling. I'm talking 1987. We were recycling 32,000 homes with a one of these crates called Big Blue in Gainesville, Florida. And you're doing I you're doing post-consumer waste as opposed to post-industrial waste because you got to do a lot of cleaning when you're doing post-consumer waste. Oh yeah, well what what we did is we gave them the items that we would take in those bins, the Big Blue bins. It was glass, newspaper, uh, tin uh, metal cans and aluminum cans uh, and PET plastic, you know, the yeah. detergent bottles. And they, they, the drivers would section it off in the truck, and then they would come to my plant and dump it on these kind of like uh, handball courts that I had built. And I had a bobcat just piling it up, putting it through the various processes, and I would take it to the, you know, owning uh uh, in in uh, Lakeland, uh, uh, I don't know what the name of the company was, owning Cornerware or something like that. Mm-hmm. In Jacksonville, I used to take uh, metals, uh, a, a newspaper, uh, cans. I mean, you name it. We had, we were recycling. I, I can't remember. You know, you're talking thirty years ago. Easily. Uh, two or three semis a week worth of waste, all because of a little creative thought of getting the, the waste hauler and the recycler to do the same business. Yeah. And 
it works. Absolutely. Now, so, now you being an entrepreneur, I've had um, uh, Guy Kelly was in um, a couple of times on my show. He is a capital investor and also an entrepreneur. And I asked him about his success rate, and he goes, all he cares about is to be 51% wins. Um, is, is that kind of the mindset of an entrepreneur has to have? And, and what is your success rate? Well, uh, honestly, uh, I have lost uh, in two businesses. Uh, and when I say lose, I didn't go broke. I, I, they just weren't successful. I, I got my money out, so to speak. But it was a trial and error type of uh, thing. I'm, I'm, I take risks with my capital. When it's somebody else's capital, I don't. I, I'm very, very careful about that. So uh, success is it's making sure that you can translate an idea into an operation. That's the first success. Then you have to turn that operation into a profitable one. That's number two. And, and finally, in some cases, the sale of that business to a third party who can run with it. In many cases... Uh, in the recycling business, was like that. I sold it to the guy who sold it to me. <laughs> that was pretty slick. Yeah, but why? Because I left them kind of saddled up on a great horse, which was Browning Ferris Industries. You know, the, the the great partner he I left them with provided him with the raw materials he needed to run the plant. But that was all creative thought on my part. To me. That was the, uh, the the success. He has a family. He has forty workers. He's a phenomenal guy in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, the, the 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 business in Nicaragua is running by Costa Ricans who came to Nicaragua to buy me buy my recycling plant. I'll tell you what I did last in Nicaragua. It was a friend of mine who was uh, had developed Parkinson's disease. He was seventy one years old, and he had planted twelve thousand uh, precious wood trees, you know, uh, mahogany, teak, all kinds of beautiful woods in this farm where he had built a dam. And we had a very, very serious drought. So when 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 he developed this uh, Parkinson's, uh, uh, he was diagnosed, he had a lot of money. So he went to New York to have a chip implanted in the middle of his brain to control the shaking. So that year he was doing that, I took over his uh, his irrigation system, and he let me have $45,000 so I could do an irrigation for him. Well, I built, I built a dam within a dam in the middle of the lake, and I dug uh, about 12 meters down from the center of the lake and uh, put in a, a, a casing that was about a... Uh, nine feet wide, and and gravel all around the outside of the casing, and a submersible pump that worked with 27 solar panels. And that pump sent water 45 meters up on top of the hill where I built the tank. You know that ever since that, the day I set that thing in motion, he's never spent a dime in irrigation. Not a dime. And his trees are all irrigated by sheer gravity. The water gets from the, from the lake to the tank by solar energy and from the tank to the trees by drip irrigation strictly 
by gravity. That's and, awesome. You know, yeah, I do that because it's a lot of fun. It's it's. I spent six months. You know how much he paid me for that? You're gonna laugh. Five hundred dollars a month. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like you're serving jury duty or something like that. Well, it was it was a test for me. It was I had challenged him. I said I can make you an irrigation deal, and God made it so that he got Parkinson's, and I he thought of my offer, and I he I said give me fifty thousand dollars, and all he had was forty five thousand, so I did it. I, I built a thing, and it, you ought to see the trees. I, I bet mean, you they're, they're gorgeous. Oh. Yeah, I bet you they're gorgeous. Do you, Al? Do you have do you have dual citizenship in the United States and in Nicaragua? I'm sorry. Do I what? Do you have dual citizenship in the United States and in Nicaragua? Oh yeah, yeah. I when I left Nicaragua in 1979, just, uh, even though I had studied here and I had family living here, I was very upset with with the U.S. government. Not don't confuse the American people with uh, Bill Pope is, is an American person. I have no problems with Bill Pope. I had a problem with one president called Jimmy Carter, who, as nice as he could be, he was extremely naive uh, in foreign policy. And he, uh, he based... People forget the kindness, the generosity, the, the culture the United States of America has that is not in the rest of the world. The, the, the rest of the world doesn't work like it worked here. People in Nicaragua and in, in, at the time the Soviet Union were debunking the best ally the United States had in Central America. And that was... I, I didn't want my uncle to stay in power. So Carter did a devastating thing. He created a vacuum by helping depose Uncle Tacho. He created such a vacuum in the country that, you know, it's you go to the beach, Bill, and you dig in the wet sand, the hole, what's it going to get filled up? With all kinds of garbage that's all around. That's right. And that's what happened in Nicaragua. The vacuum my uncle left just got filled with a bunch of gorillas, uh, people who had resentment, people who had no culture, people who had no training, and they destroyed the country. The Sandinistas were the worst thing, and they still are, that could have happened to those poor people. So I left the country very upset with the American government, and I went to live to the Bahamas. Okay. God and destiny had it that I met an American girl there, and a few years later, we got married, and we stayed living in the Bahamas. By that time, Ronald Reagan was president, and my wife, uh, the mother of my children, uh, didn't want to continue living in the islands, so we moved to the United States, and by virtue of my marriage to her, I became a U.S. resident, and 11 years later, I became a U.S. citizen. And uh, I am a U.S. citizen, and I'm very proud of that. I, I chose to be a U.S. citizen. I didn't. I wasn't born here. Uh, I was. I made my choice, and I was 11 years a U.S. resident, not sure to become a U.S. citizen, until I finally said, "You know what? This country has only given me opportunities for which I am extremely grateful. Nobody has ever 
insulted me. Nobody has ever mistreated me. This, and I'm a foreigner. I am going to become a U.S. citizen and, and believe in this country, and I swore allegiance to the flag. Uh, well, it sounds like you're a true success story. Al, we have about one minute left. I have a kind of a general question. Do you have any regrets, whether it's professional or, or, or business-wise uh, or you know, family-wise, whatever? Do you have personal or professional regrets? I don't have any regrets in my life. Uh, other than having been a bad boy uh, to destroy my marriage. Uh, God had it that we're now very good friends. My former wife and I were, my children love me and I adore them. They're like the air I breathe, my two boys. They're very well, they're successful. Uh, and, and Christine is a fantastic lady and they have a great business. That's the, the, the only regret I could, is having destroyed my marriage, but it, it's it's together as a family separated. I'm now remarried to a beautiful lady who is uh, God given to me. Uh, I somebody I've known for 50 years. I know her family very well from Nicaragua. Her name is Glenda McGregor. She is uh, a beautiful lady, a very nice mother of three. So all told, we have five kids, and. Uh, very happy. Well, that is great. Al, I, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. It's been a fascinating hour, and I really, really appreciate your time. And it's uh, personally, it's great to catch up with you again. Likewise, Bill. Um, I may get up to Atlanta where I have my nephew living there, and, and two of my niece and my nephew from two brothers of mine. So I may get up there. Well, Atlanta. If, if you do, you better call me or I'm going to come hunt you down. You're going you're gonna to like this last line, I'm going to tell you. One of the businesses I started in Nicaragua was a barbecue business. Now that I hear you're advertising barbecue, very successful. Well, that is fantastic. Al, again, Al Samosa, thank you so much, and we will certainly be in touch soon. Take care. And Bye-bye. thank you all very much for listening to the Manifesto with Billy Brew. Next week, we're going to have some heavy metal music. Yeah, I said it, heavy metal music. Hold on to your socks. Y'all have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week.